please come and join us and over 800 of your fellows from all around the globe, January 17th through 19th, 2020, as OA turns 60 at the LAX Hilton located in Los Angeles. It's going to be a weekend filled with recovery, a two-day big book workshop, special focus panels, marathons, prize drawings, and so much more. Early bird registration is $45 through October 1st, and we are experiencing higher than usual numbers for meals, so don't forget to buy one. Please go to oalaig.org to register. Hi, a two-second compulsive overeater. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much, Michael, for asking me to speak. Um, albeit last minute, which is awesome. <laughs> I've always been um, taught to say yes to, uh, to OA service. Um, I've also been taught not to wear jeans when I speak. Um, last minute. So, um, thank you. Thank you. And I have to, I have to just check my ego, because for a second I was like, wait. Are we ending the meeting sooner? So my leave's actually going to be shorter? <laughs> Is there another date available where I can speak in all my glory? Um, so we'll go till 9.15 and I will um, share my experience strength and hope. So I'm so grateful for these rooms. I, I, I just don't think... My life would be where it is today if I didn't if I if I if I didn't have the privilege of walking through the doors of OA um, in '97. I have 20 years and four months of abstinence. My um, abstinence date is May 12, 1999, and that was actually Mother's Day, which for me is pertinent because my mom died of this disease. Uh, she was 38, and she literally dropped dead. Uh, from complications of HCG and B6 and 500 calories a day. So I, I don't, I don't have, I would say I don't have far to look to see the, the genetic and epigenetic and, and all the different factors that went into my baby compulsive overeater and I could, my bottom will be six feet under in a very, very large coffin. That is, that is what I do. Um, so I found food because I was a, a really sensitive kid, um, kind of like one of those like weird, quirky, old soul kids that doesn't fit in, and um, coupled with what was going on in my home, which I might guess that some of you can, can have a feeling of what was going on, um, I, I turned to food, and it worked, it worked well, like I, I really was a... Um, I was a food pharmacist, and I could, like, I could, I could literally make hydrocodone with food. So enough salt, sugar, and crunch, and fat, and I was out. And I was always a volume eater. So you know, we're we're Persians, like we cook in vats. And my and my mom would have food on the stove, and like come back and be like, "Where's the food?" Like entire pots of rice and like twelve eggs would be gone and the whole loaf of bread would be gone and 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 the whole box of cereal would be gone and she'd just be like, what? Right? And she was a compulsive overeater herself, always struggling with her weight. <coughs> and my dad was an alcoholic and there was abuse in the home. So 
Thank God. Like, good job, kiddo. Right? You found the most legal good girl substance that you could to deal for what was going on. Um, and then I, I discovered dieting when I was nine. And I decided I could only eat fruit and run around the block. Um, so I did for one day. And um, slowly, you know, it, it just... I remember I grew up in England. So I was born in Iran. Grew up in England, which had its own challenges because I was like the only, the only this color kid in the countryside of England. Um, in my eyes, going through what I was going through, which nobody seemed to understand what it was like to be an immigrant. And so, very quickly, I learned that there was something wrong with my eating. And there was something shameful about my body. And if I was going to eat, <clears throat> you would know my secret. And so I should eat in secret. And I was a mastermind at planning, buying, hoarding, eating in secret. So by the time the school bus came at like 6.40, I had already eaten like a, a Halloween's worth of candy just to be able to get through my school day. And so the local, locals in the family were like, what the hell's going on with Tusa? Like, we've got to put her on a diet. So it became the family's primary purpose to control and manage my weight, which was really good for my self-esteem and um, really allowed me to soar in that, <laughs> in that area. Um, and then my mom died very, very suddenly. I, I walked in um, to find her dead on the floor and very quickly became you know, one of the care providers for my seven-year-old brother. We emigrated within 30 days and moved down the street um, to my grandparents in Beverly Hills. And I ended up at Beverly Hills School, an overweight English kid with no mother. And the food really, really took off. And so without, you know, without boring you with all the details of the binges and the lies and the diets, and the self-hatred and the feelings of out of control and the checkbooks that came out multiple, multiple, multiple times. Help me, help me. You're a voodoo doctor, here's the money. You're a Weight Watchers, here. You're Jenny Craig, here. You're a personal trainer, you're a nutritionist, you're a psychologist, you're an eating disorder specialist. Help, here's my money. And nothing worked. <coughs> By the time I came into the rooms after my second kid, um, my husband had actually sat me down, you guys have heard this story, but he thought I was having an affair. And he was just like, like if, if you are, if there's another man, like, let's call it a day. Like, I'm out. And I was like, another man. <laughs> the only other thing I'm having an affair with is my eating disorder. Because planning binges and being sown before you get home and hating my body and not wanting to go out with you because I feel too fat and my dress doesn't fit and asking you who the prettiest girl at the party is because it isn't me and maybe it's me and you were looking at her and maybe you're not is the only thing I'm having an affair with. But it was enough to take me out of my marriage and almost lead me to divorce because my husband thought I was cheating. So that is the preoccupation. Like, this is not a part-time disease. You know, it's not like, I think I'll dabble in compulsive overeating and self-hatred just a little bit, and then live a really cool, God-connected, loving-of-self-life on this side. It takes me out. And so by the time I came in, uh, thank you, God, I, um, I, my sponsor was really solid. 
we worked the steps. I called her twice a day for two years. And she took my calls because one 24-hour period was too long without checking in. And the weight started coming off. My top weight is well over 200 pounds. I was 16. Today, I'm somewhere between a 10 and a 12, depending on my willingness to eat less and exercise. And I've never been less. Like, you know, I look at my youngest daughter, who is stunning and not skinny, and this solid, beautiful woman. And I'm like, that is what I looked like, and I thought I was fat. And I refuse, I refuse to force this body into something that it's not. It's, it's not, it's not going to be a size four, right? Um, I'm also like a, a Persian Jew who's about to be a grandmother. So I don't, I don't win any metabolism competitions. Right? <laughs> um, so it's, it, you know, it's the definition of abstinence is working towards or maintaining a person of goal weight. And I've been at goal weight, I've been higher than goal weight, I've never been under goal weight, mind you. Um, but again, I'm working towards that because the weight started to come up a few years ago and I had to make some changes. So, what's going on today? 20 years in. Um, I am, oh, and, and like, my first sponsor, God bless her, Heidi. Hi, Heidi. She's uh, selfishly moved to Ohio. Um, <laughs> <laughs> married and had a kid and has a full life. Um, she taught me, like, about service, and she taught me about coming early and leaving late to meetings. And she taught me about going to three meetings no matter what and having two service commitments. And she taught me about saying yes and walking up to the speaker and thanking the speaker and working the steps and calling when I said we would and really being a woman of race and dignity, which is what she modeled for me. And then I was able to pass on to other women. Um, nine years in, she moved and I got another sponsor that same day. The thought of not having a sponsor in this program was terrifying to me because uh, I knew I could go out real quick. And my current sponsor, Leslie, uh, she sponsored me for 11 years and has given me all those gifts. And it's always been about God. It's always been about service. It's always been about being one among many. And she sponsors, God bless her, I think there was like 22 of us that she sponsors. Um, so we have regular you know, step studies and regular big book meetings. And I really feel part of the herd with her. Uh, being sponsored by her. And when I call her with stuff, it's never about my body. She never says, well, what did you eat? She always says, did you do your prayer and meditation? Did you connect with God today? What, what is going on where you can be of service and get out of your own head? It's never been about, send me your food, put the calorie count next to it, weigh yourself, send me your weight. And for some people, that really, really works. I, I don't have the magic answer of how you should work your program. But I know that for me, those early, those early days, early years of program really set a foundation for me that everyone in my life who sort of asks, like, what are those things about? And how come, how come you're able to deal with that? Or my friend the other day was like, how do you get out of judgment? Like, you're not a judgmental person as far as I can see. Trust me, I am. Um, but it's the program. And sitting down and listening to enough women give me their fifth step, how can I be judgmental? Like, we're all doing our best, one among many. There's nothing that makes me go, oh, that's, a, that's really fucked up and I can't sponsor you. Nothing. So, 
it's so much more than a food program for me. Um, very slowly, the weight is coming down. I have a very, um, I got a very big awakening a week ago or two where I was like, there is more damage being done by my hiding the food than my eating the food. So I still have that like, I will sit in the darkest corner of the restaurant. I will purchase something to eat in the car later so it's not in front of you. I will not order what I want because my feeling is, oh, they're going to think the fat girl's eating again. And it just, this little voice came to me that was like, dude, if this fat girl doesn't stop eating in secret, this fat girl's going to get fatter. So let's look at that, right? So I started like now eating in public, in front of people, if I want a slice of cake, I order a slice of cake with the company that I'm with. Because what I would do was, I'll have a salad, wait for everyone to drive away, <laughs> go back in line, order the cake and eat it in the car. And I will tell you, that quadrupled the calories in the cake. Because the shame, the weight, the guilt, the self-hatred was so immense that it would only end up in my body in shame. So, um, that's what's been happening. And lo and behold, my pants are looser, the weight's coming off. I'm more willing to exercise because exercise isn't about losing weight, it's about feeling good, apparently. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I never knew. Like, I can now, like, take a class or walk around the block and be like, dang, it feels good. Like, body, like, the blood kind of circulates and I feel the sun and has nothing to do with my weight at all. Um, although it probably helps, but it doesn't, you know. And so I'll just tell you the story because it was such a paramount experience. Last week, my um, sponsor got married, and I wasn't able to go to the wedding, but I was invited to the post-brunch the next day. So I go to the brunch, and it's like, it's in Brentwood. There's a lot of white city people, and, you know, we ordered, the, you know, they ordered this lovely family-style lunch, that breakfast, that included this pastry basket. And I'm eyeing the pastry basket, and there's this one, can I talk about food? There's this one almond croissant that is literally flirting with me on the other side, right? And I can't hear anybody because I'm focused on it, and I'm watching the pastry basket like a ping pong ball, like go across the table. Mind you, my sponsor is sitting next to me. <laughs> How the hell do I eat an almond croissant in front of my sponsor? Like, so, I had a great idea. Later, after I see my client and I come back, I'm going to valet, hop out, buy the almond croissant, and eat it on my way home. Or, if I don't make it in that bakery next to me, tomorrow I'll have the almond croissant, so I'll just get that for the fix of the almond croissant that I want now. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I turned to Leslie and I was like, hey, like, can you pass me a pastry basket? And she was like, sure. Took a piece of the almond croissant and had it in front of my sponsor and all the skinny brown people. <laughs> and nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. And the magic of that was that I stopped thinking about it. I didn't rally later to pick it up in secret. I didn't eat it in shame. I didn't eat it in self-hatred. I ate a piece of what I wanted in front of people, and I had freedom. And so I can't speak to, to, to many people who are like, if I have a bite of that almond croissant, I won't stop. Right? That's not my experience. My experience is, if I eat it in secret and shame and self-hatred, that's when I can't stop. Because how do you fill a hole that is filled with negativity, 
and shame and fatigue. Thank you. Thanks for letting me share. This is the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions I shared here are my own only and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you don't need to identify yourself, but please remember if you ask a question, your name may be audible on the OA podcast. Pregunta. Question? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Thank you for your share. What is your daily ritual now? My, de- my ideal, I'll tell you my ideal and then what happens um, when I'm in a rush. Uh, ideally, it's 15 to 20 minutes. It's five minutes of reading something, five minutes of writing, five minutes of meditation. Um, and I've become really good with meditation lately. What, I, what I've noticed about old timers is what, seems to, what, se- what they seem to do consistently is say yes to service and meditate. And I was like, well, I want to be, I want to be one of those, I want to be one of those old timers. Um, so the the letter is usually a letter to God, um, like dear God, and I set a timer for whatever is going on. Uh, I let I set a list of intentions of what I what I want done for the day, and then I make a to do list that goes from about here to here, and then I look at it realistically, and I'm like, all right, probably this is going to get done, and if that gets done, fantastic. Um, and the day seems to go better. And the, the abridged version of that is reading one of the OA or uh, AA for today and doing a five-minute meditation. So I skip the writing when I'm in a rush. Thank you. Thank you so brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, so you didn't think about the rest of that from not in there for the rest of the day? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, it took... It took the charge out of it because what I wanted was a piece of croissant. What the disease tells me is come back and have three. So for me, and I can only speak for me, there are lots of people that are like, I'm a sugar addict, I'm a flour addict if I have it. I'm only speaking for me. I know for me, my addiction, my red light is the need to eat it in secret. And when I have a plate in public, and, and when I watch people eat, like normal-sized people who I know who I know are n- don't have a food disorder, like they eat normal food at normal times and kind of move on. And they'll have a slice of cake or they'll have a slice of this or a slice of that. And I think my, my disease was so based in self-hatred and shame and hiding that that's the behavior I need to stay away from and, and eating in the car. Now, sometimes I have to eat in the car because I'm running from one thing to another, but that, like, conniving to eat in the car is different than i got to just put something in my mouth and go to the next meeting, right? So, this is just my experience. And I've done it. I've done the, like, no sugar, no flour. I've done it. But you know what ends up happening? I'll eat, like, a 48-ounce steak, you know, uh, because I'm not eating sugar, so I might as well load up on whatever else is available. And that's not really not compulsive overeating. So for me, I want to not compulsive overeat. I want to eat with freedom and grace and not hide my food and not have self-hatred. And for whatever reason, the pants are getting looser. So something's working. Yeah. about 
Um, good question. Oh, sorry. If it's not about the food, then what is it about? I think a lot of times it's about not feeling a part of, um, fear of not being understood. I think the, the very old thing of like, you don't see me, you don't see me. And it, it's old, right? It's, you know, when, when you're a kid that has to keep a secret, there, or chooses to keep a secret, um, there's always that, like, I don't fit in because something's going on that I can't tell. And I think with my, with my job, which is very fatiguing, my, my, I have one of the most beautiful jobs in the world, but it keeps me on call 24-7, which is why I carry, like, a drug dealer pager on Saturdays. Um, I'm on call 24-7, and when I say goodbye to my family and go to a gig, um, I may not be home for three days. So sometimes it's just pure, like the lines get crossed where my body's like, am I tired? Am I hungry? Am I tired? Am I hungry? Cake. Like, it, it, like, it defaults to like cake. And a lot of times I have to be like, no, it's like you haven't slept for like a day and a half. Let's take a nap and if you still want cake, we'll have cake. It's like a toddler. <laughs> you know, like, no, honey, after the nap, we'll go to the park, right? It's, it's the same thing. Because for whatever reason, my, my system was programmed to believe that food will make me feel better. And it did for a very long time. But when I've worked for three days, it's not the cake that's going to make me feel better. It's like sleep and hydration, right? So there you go. Yeah? How did your recovery is really inspiring? So the question is, how did, when you work your sixth step, how did you work it in relation to your fourth step columns, and what happened? Yeah, I love that question. How did I work my fourth step, uh, my sixth step in relation to my fourth step columns, and what happened? Um, I worked very, very traditionally, so I did um, the four-step inventory, the first one. And God bless Heidi, I think we sat for four or five sessions and she listened to my inventory. And as, as I spoke, she had me circle the last column. So it was, and it's usually the same few offenders, right? I just did step six with a sponsor, with a sponsee. Um, it's usually fear, like fear is the master umbrella. And underneath fear are pride, resentment, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, sloth. And a hundred versions of that. So my character defects tend to fall under, I'm not being seen, I'm not being heard, you're doing it wrong. Um, blame, judgment, victimization, um, exhaustion, those sorts of things. And some of those have been lifted. Like I can tell you for the most part today, like I don't gossip. But gossip has been like, I don't like talking shit about other people, sorry. Um, it makes me feel really dirty, like spiritually gross. Can I fall into it? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's one of the ones that's really been lifted. Um, wanting to, let me see. So when I, when I go to work, which is usually where most of my character defects come up, and when I have to have a discussion with my teenager, um, which I've now started doing in the bathtub, by the way. So if I need to have a meeting with her, I'll do it in the bathtub because I can't get very angry if I'm sitting in the bathtub. Um, so, but generally, I can't do that at work. Um, and my prayer is, it's the seven-step prayer. So it's my creator. I'm now willing that you should take all of me good and the bad. And I will list my good 
and I will list my bad. All the things that when I leave work, I'm like, Bleh. right, it's usually related to me. And that can be self-righteous anger. It can be thinking I'm right. It can be the need to be the, the most competent person in the room. Um, please remove those, right, so that I can be a vessel of your will and I can be of service and I can be the best that I can be with the privilege of the job that you've given me. Um, so I list, I still list those character defects for my first inventory. Um, because it's, it's, and Casey said it best once, I, I asked her, like, what's the difference between a, what is it, a, a defect and a, shortcoming. yes, and a, shor- what is it, a shortcoming and a, shoot, yeah, shortcoming and a defect, and she said, defects are probably something I will go to my grave with, shortcomings are my, the way that I act on them daily. And I was like, wow, like the chances that I will like ever stop being self-righteous or thinking I'm right, hopefully that'll happen, but it may not. But one day at a time, I want to not act self-righteous and that I'm right. Um, So six and seven are huge. Like usually when I'm really in pain, like when I'm really hurting, six and seven get me out of it. Because I'm like, all right, what is being activated here from that fourth column? And generally it's, Pride, control, resentment, wanting people to do things a different way who won't. Um, so, thanks for the question. Jack? When you finally got the program, how did you work the program to deal with the second half of your sentence of um, dark skin, little girl, dead mother? Mm-hmm. How did you work the program on the second half of that sentence about the dead mother over the years? Because that's pretty scarring. Oof, yeah, I think I think the trauma that came from that um, is still with me. I mean, that me coupled too, with... Sorry, um, Jack, repeat the question. I, I no, I'm going to do a program on the part of having a dead mother. You know, it's, it's... How do I deal with program with regards to having a dead mother at such a young age and the scarring yeah. that that left? Yeah. Um, thank you. I think when you lose your mother that young with that kind of trauma and all the things that were surrounding it, which were horrible, um, it never fully goes away. So what are, I'm very aware of, so I have a boo right? I have this like fourth degree tear, for example, this fourth degree burn, right? And there are times when the burn is really like beautifully healing over and like it's taken care of, it's not activated. But you know, once in a while, like someone will walk by and like it'll get like a little, rip in it and it'll start bleeding and what I have to realize is the person that walked by is not the person or the situation that caused the burn because it's very simple to bring everything back to my trauma bring it back to the abuse bring it back to not being believed bring it back to people who do the wrong thing bring it back to denial bring it back to why the hell were you dieting 500 calories when you had two young kids and were about to emigrate, and why did you drop dead when you were 38? I can like bring it all back to that. Where the hell was my dad? So there's many, many layers of this. But today, as I sit here, a professional with three grown daughters and mostly working with women, hearing that I'm not alone in that, like I have access to people's medical charts, right? And when I read woman after woman, do you have a history of abuse? Do you have a history of addiction? Do you have a history of eating disorder? Yes, yes, yes. I'm not alone in this. So it could have been not my mother <coughs> dropped out and my dad was an alcoholic. 
It could have been, we left Iran and that was a trauma. It could have been, I was a white kid amidst the Pakistani community. I don't know what it could have been. It could have been anything. But that is sort of what I labeled as all the things to bring my being a different, oversensitive, um, old soul who nobody understands. And I said to Leslie one time, I said, Leslie, it says in the big book, it, I quoted it, we alcoholics are sensitive people. And she was like, Tuesday. The sentence after that says, and that is a liability we must learn to overcome. And I was like, well, fine. <laughs> um, so it's, I am oversensitive. I am, you know, I am, I do think deeply and I do think wild, you know, widely and I do think too much. Um, but I think that holding that trauma and really giving it the love that it needs and the attention that it needs and not making everyone else in my life who does something wrong a re-triggering of that trauma has been, has been huge. So holding, holding both. Yeah. You just covered it a little bit, but can you break down what you do when something happens that totally disappoints you instead of going to food? Yeah, that, that's actually been like the past four years. Like, it's, I'm dealing with something, or I'm not dealing with it, I'm just a part of something that is deeply disappointing. Deeply disappointing. And it actually made me gain a few pounds. I'll be completely honest with you. Um, that are, thank God, like off now. But um, at the beginning, it was that self-righteous anger. Like, what, what do you mean? What do you mean you're acting this way? What do you mean? Are you freaking kidding me? And I find every time I need to say, really? That's self-righteous anger, right, in my world. Because it's like, really, you do it that way? Really? Which means you're doing it wrong, according to me. Um, feel the disappointment. Talk to my posse. Like, I have a posse of women in the room, outside help, sponsor, <laughs> right, and people in my life who I go to for the right thing. So there was a time where I was like, you don't understand, you don't understand. Well, I'm trying to buy a light bulb from... McDonald's, like, you don't understand because they don't sell light bulbs, right? But now in my life, I have light bulb stores that I can go to and be like, hey, like, this is what's going on, and I'm hurting. I'm hurting. And the light bulb store can help me with my light bulb problem. Whereas, you know, McDonald's only helps with one thing. Um, so I think that's been huge, and I think the sixth and seventh step. So what, who says my way is right? Disappointment happens when I think you're not doing it my way, which is the right way, in parentheses. Thus, I'm disappointed. But if I turn it around and say, in your mind, you think you're doing it the right way, I can't take that away from you. That's your way. So how do I choose? Where do I find the middle line? Can I be with people who deeply disappoint me all the time and whose value system I don't agree with? It's up to me. Totally up to me, but going to the wrong place to help with the processing and the hurt and the feelings is not the way to go. Yeah.